We are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, I hope you guys are doing good. Uh, Thank you for joining us, whether you're a first-time listener to this podcast channel or whether you've been with us for a while. Um, I just want to say thank you for joining in and taking some time out of your day. We are going to... Uh, get into Luke chapter 16, but we're going to do it just a little bit differently in order to be able to kind of take the context of the passage of what Jesus reveals into the parable that he illustrates for us. And this is one that has given me, um, you know, kind of some fits before because it there's some elements in it that I'm like, man, I just don't quite grasp what this is stating. And I, I have a generality of it in, in theory and in concept. But there, there are some things in it that are difficult whenever I read the parable first and then I try to get the explanation and take it back into it. So we're going to actually do it a little bit differently. We're going to go from ch- uh, in chapter 16, verses 9 through 17. We're going to talk about that um, and then we're going to carry that back into the parable that Jesus uses. Now, something that I think needs to be stated is... Um, ever since chapter 14 and, and going into 15 and now 16 and even some part of 17, is it's seemingly still the same setting, the same people, and he's having just one big teaching lesson. And primarily the thrust of this is to the Pharisees. Um, and you could even by extension just, you know, less refined by extension, the Jewish people. Okay, um, And that's going to kind of come into play in a little bit, as you're going to see in verse 14. The Pharisees have been listening to him since chapter 14. Uh, and, and what we have been going over, and a lot of it going over you know, since chapter 12, going into 13, going into 14, a lot of it has been in terms of money and how we utilize money whether it be for ourselves or whether it be for God's glory and, and using it for the betterment of others. He's talking to this, to this group of people about money, about how the Jews used to be God's people and they ruined it, they spoiled it, all because they were seeking to be self-righteous and justify themselves, specifically the Pharisees um, and the scribes, as he has a message for them in chapter 14 and 15. If you haven't listened to those, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. I think 15 was a, me- a word to the self-righteous in a, uh, a, re, uh, a revamping of what Luke 15 seems to have always been taught, at least in my circles, and revamping that into kind of the context of what the passage is. So going into chapter 16, we're going to get right into the verse 9 and read through 17, and then we're going to go back into 1 through 8 after we've discussed it of what the context is, and hopefully this will make a lot of sense for you guys as we go into it, and Lord willing, I'll be able to explain it in a way that makes sense to you, that we can all benefit from in the fullness of the text, and then we'll keep going into chapter 16, the rest of it. 
So in verse 9, he says this, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. There's a lot of debate as to what this loan verse is referencing. And, um, you know, people have various arguments on each side that seem fitting and seem um, good. But we're going to keep going and we're going to kind of see what it is that, uh, at least in my estimation, that he's talking about here. One thing I do want to kind of point out is that this term for unrighteous wealth, you're going to find the the term wealth to be mammon. um, Essentially, it's just worldliness. Okay, it's something that is of the world. It's it's a wealth that's not of heaven. It's of the world. And this term for unrighteous is a word that, well, it's adikos is the Greek word. And it's an adjective that is descriptive of it. It's not a noun that that is in and of itself unrighteous. It is a description of it. And this word means wicked or of the heathen. So it's describing this wealth. It's heathenistic. It's worldly wealth that is of the, the, the wicked or the pagan okay so it's not something that is good it's not something that is um, useful even it's something that is worldly okay and as James 4 talks to us about this worldly concept wealth in and of itself is not evil it is how one uses it that makes it evil and if you use it for yourself then it is a worldly type self-indulgence that becomes of the heathen Because the pagan and the heathen and the one who is worldly and temporal and not inside of Christ, they use wealth for themselves. And so this is kind of the description of what this mammon is, okay? It's worldliness and it's self-indulgent worldliness that one is, is lavishing upon themselves for their own betterment and not for the betterment of others. So that's kind of the description of this. So he said, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. He says, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is honest, I'm sorry, is also dishonest in much. This is a principle that we need in the church for leadership. When we're appointing people into leadership, man, you better make sure that they're being faithful in the small things. They might do the occasional big thing here and there, but if a person cannot be faithful in the day-to-day, they're spending diligent time in the Word. They're serving other people. It's the consistency in their life that they're doing those small things well. And if they're doing the small things well, you can trust them that they'll do the bigger things well. But the inverse of that is if somebody is doing the small things not so well, Those little things are not daily in the word. They're not studying. They're not praying. They're not serving. They're not loving people. Um, The way it's not a consistent in their life. And you can rest assured that when it comes time for them to do the big things, they're going to fail. At some point, they're going to fail, and it's going to be a big failure. And so we need to make sure that we have leaders um, in the church that are consistent. And that, um, you know, do things, the little things, well. Um, and this goes into having people in your life that you trust, that you confide in, that you surround yourself with. If you have people in your life that are constantly not doing the, the little things well, man, they're not going to be great friends for you. Because they will fail you. And so it's a kind of a principle he's bringing in here. He says in verse 11, If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth. Remember we talked about that, that adikos, that worldliness of self-indulgence in the same um, 
in the same manner as the heathen or the wicked. If you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he either they hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now there's two things that are listed here, God and mammon, money, worldly riches. Now as we go back into this parable, we're going to take that as a carrying device into it to realize that there's actually two things that are, that are being um, emphasized in this parable. And you have the rich man who put this guy in charge of his possessions and the people who owed. Okay? So we're going to look at that in just a little bit. I want to keep going in verse 14. It says, The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, not just this previous parable, but everything that he's been talking about. Remember what he said in the very first verse of chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. He's talking to the Pharisees, to the scribes, and everything that he's been teaching over the last couple chapters, and here's no different. They're still there, and he said, these people were lovers of money, and so what did they do when they heard all these things? They ridiculed him because they knew that Jesus was speaking about them. Whether it's in chapter 14, whether it is in chapter 15, or whether it's this parable that he's talking about here, they understood, and they said, man, we get it, you're talking about us. How dare you? And they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. Now all this is fitting together. It goes in together even in chapter 15 at the end with the this, this story of the, this, the proclaimed prodigal son that I think a lot of people misconstrued today and misteach from the pulpit today thinking that the primary emphasis is on the son that went away thinking that that was a Christian who came back. I don't believe that at all. Go listen to chapter 15. Hopefully that would make sense for you. I think the primary target that Jesus is, is emphasizing is the older son who never got to partake of the sacrifice he never got to, um, to partake of the bloodshed for the forgiveness of sins, if you will. Because that's what Leviticus, I think, is what 17.11 says. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. The older son never got to celebrate with the sacrifice. And so I'll let you go back and listen to that if you so desire. But here he says, you are those who seek to justify yourselves before men. He said, you think that when you have the favor of God... I'm sorry, I'm putting the car before the horse. You think that whenever you live it up luxuriously and self-indulgently and you get to spend all this stuff for yourself, you think somehow that that means you have the favor of God. That when you get to spend things on yourself, you get to lavish um, you know, this health, wealth, prosperity gospel that's out there. You think that that's a sign of God's favor. And in turn, that seeks to justify you as if you are in right standing with God because you have worldly riches and that is so far from the truth because that's the exact opposite of the apostles in early church and Jesus himself. He says, you seek to justify yourself before men, somehow soothing your conscience that because you have all this stuff, that somehow God gave you all this stuff for you to enjoy for yourself because he's just 
you are so much in his favor. And in your reputation before men. He goes on, but God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination before God. Think about that verse. The world looks out and they say, man, if you've got fame and fortune, man, you're doing something right and I want to be just like you. And what is exalted among men is an abomination before God. God's not looking for you to be famous. He's not looking for you to have fortune. He's looking for you to do exactly what Luke 17, 10 says. So you also, when you have done all that you are commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. God's looking for people who surrender to him, who live this life in, the, in accordance with his image and with his word. And if you do that, you will not have fame and fortune. I guarantee you. Because you might get unrighteous wealth. You might have that come into your life. But your commission in the image of Christ and in the command of God is to not utilize that for yourself, but to give it for the betterment of others. And we're going to read a a passage in 2 Corinthians um, that, that hopefully will kind of illustrate this. He goes on and he says, The law and the prophets were until John. Which, by the way, the law and the prophets proclaim that if you do what God wants you to, he will lavish riches upon you. But did you notice what he said? He said, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. Now this goes into the concept of the firstborn, secondborn. You know, Israel was God's territory. Um, It was a physical kingdom, a physical temple, a physical people, with physical riches, physical prom. You know, all these various things that God will give them dominion everywhere they go. If they go out and they, they get into battle, everything is physical. And that's what the law and the prophets were all surrounded in. You mess up, you're going to have a Babylon who comes in and takes you captive until you repent. And then you can come back into Israel. And I'll bless you and give you dominion again with physical things. He says all that happened until John. Once John came, John began looking forward. John began preaching a gospel of what was coming. That was the second born, the spiritual Jesus Christ, the second Adam who is going to bring about spiritual riches, not physical. He was going to bring about a spiritual kingdom, not a physical one. A spiritual temple, not a physical one. Spiritual sacrifices, not physical. Do you see the distinction of what the cross has purchased? It's no longer about the law and the prophets. That ended with John when he began to preach a message of the voice of one, of the one who is coming that was going to take away the sins, not the blood of bulls and goats, as Hebrews 10 says. Everything began to move forward. From John and not look backwards. And what are the Pharisees doing? They heard John's message. They heard Jesus' message. And they're still looking back. They're still looking to the blessings of the old. And not the blessing of the new that comes through Christ. He goes on he says. "Um, uh, Since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away. Than for one dot of the law to become void. What in the world does he mean by that? Here's what he means. The Pharisees had their power through the law. 
They had their prestige through the law. They had their reputation through the law. Their observance of the law and everything that came along with it. Their entitlement, their position, their authority. All the power that they had came because the law instituted it for them. And Jesus is telling them, you want to justify yourselves before men. You want to make sure that you're living it up. And that people think that you have everything all together, even though you are whitewashed tombs. Inward, you are just simply full of dead man's bones. And you want to justify yourselves before men and have the reputation. And he says, you are not going to give up even one dot of the law, even though the law spoke of me. And as Ephesians 2, 11 through 19 talk about, that when a person comes into Christ, the law of commandments expressed through ordinances is abolished. It's no longer about the law and the prophets. It's about Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, but you're not going to give up even a dot of the law. Because from it, you receive your power and your authority and your reputation and your entitlement. And because you are so prideful, you can't see beyond it. And that's why he says it's easier... um, For heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Man, go read Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 19, and it is impossible to say that one dot of the the law has not become void in Christ. It's impossible. You can't read it any other way. That in Christ, the law of commandments expressed through ordinances, and go look up the Greek word for for ordinances and the law of commandments, and you're going to find that it is specific to the law of Moses. He says it has been abolished. And you're like wait, wait, wait. Wait, what a second. What about Matthew 5? It says that, not, that he didn't come to abolish the law. You're right, he didn't. He came to fulfill it. And through his fulfillment, when a person comes into Christ, they find it abolished. The law is still in full effect even right now. For those who are outside of Christ. You will be judged under that law. And if you do not keep it perfectly. Then you will not get into heaven. You can't mess up a single time. That's what Matthew 5 is all about. The entirety of Matthew 5 is simply stating this as he sums up in the very end of his discourse there. When he says, therefore you must be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. He says, if you want to get into heaven outside of me, you want to try to find some other way in. You want to go in through the law? Well, just understand that whenever I'm crucified and I shed my blood, that is Hebrews 10, 1 through 13 talk about, where he says, God's not looking at the blood of bulls and goats any longer because he prepared a body for you and his son. That is the only sacrifice he will look upon. So if you mess up, you have no atonement for sin. If you are under the law and outside of Christ. He said, you have no atonement for sin because God's not going to look at the blood of bulls and goats anymore. In the law, it atoned for it. It literally says it in the Day of Atonement when they would go and they would offer the sacrifices correctly before the Lord and they would do that. It says that they would be forgiven of the sins. There was atonement. But once Christ came, he said, you do not have atonement through any other means other than the blood of Christ. So if you want to try to get in apart from Christ, then you must understand that nothing has passed from the law for you. You are accountable to all of it. Every jot and every tittle that is written down, you are accountable for it. And if you mess up one time, you will have no sacrifice for sins. And you will not get into heaven. It's literally what he says. That's what Matthew 5 is all about. He's not stating what is to come under the new covenant. He is stating what was under the old. 
And we're going to get into that even in just a little bit in the next passage. But the concept that he's stating here, let me get too far away from that. The concept that he's stating here is, is that the worldly riches, the worldly mammon that's there and the heathenistic example of spending upon yourself, that will never, ever, ever honor God and please Him and find His honor towards you in doing it. Never. You're wasting His possessions, if you will. And we'll get into that in a little bit of what that means or where that comes into play. Rather, when you use what is at your disposal for the betterment of others, God is honored and God will honor you as a result. It's all about how do we love God and love his, our neighbor, right? That's what fulfills the entirety of the law. How do we do that? How do we do it with worldly riches? With the, the heathenistic example of self-indulgence and then give people leftovers? Or is it when we do what the early church did at the command of Christ in Luke 12, 33-34 when he says, Sell your possessions and give to the needy and provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens where moth and rust do not destroy. You look in Acts 2 and Acts 4 when it literally says they were selling their possessions and giving it to the needy and there was not a needy person among them. They had all things in common. This is what the early church was doing. They were getting rid of the fluff. They were getting rid of the worldly mammon and they were wasting it upon others for the glory of God because they themselves realized they had a better possession and an abiding one as Hebrews puts it. This is the model of Christianity. And obviously these Pharisees didn't get the memo because they're still following the old. So with all that, going back into Luke chapter 16, 1 through 8, here's what he says. He also said to the disciples, so now there's a, a joining in that the Pharisees are still listening. He just told the Pharisees and basically um, rebuked them with the story of these 99 and the 9 and then the older son, I believe that the main character in all of those was the 99 and the 9 and the older son. And the message was less to the one and more to the other, to the Pharisees and the scribes who are grumbling. And he said also to the disciples, now he's including them, speaking directly more so to them, but also to the Pharisees. He says, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So you have this rich man who has this manager, right? He's supposed to be a steward. And he's supposed to steward this manager's possessions in a way that brings honor to the manager and, I'm sorry, to the rich man and not to himself. So what does he do? He calls him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager and the manager said to himself what shall i do since my master's taken the management away from me i'm not strong enough to dig i'm not and i'm ashamed to beg this pride he says my whole life i've had other people serve me my whole life it's all been about me what am i going to do and here's remember what he talked about the pharisees you are those who are lovers of money you seek to justify yourselves and you don't want to give up your power and your position and you want people to still serve you. You still want life to be about you. But here's what he says 
about this manager. He says, I, I decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil, which is a lot of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat, which is a lot of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. I completely believe that what God is stating here, what Jesus is trying to allude to the people is to say this. Use whatever is given to you in this life. Whatever is at your disposal, use it for the betterment of others and to the glory of God. And God will receive you. He will honor you. And you will bring honor to his name in doing it. But if you choose to waste his possessions solely upon yourself, spending lavishly and self-indulgence, as James 5 talks about, that the things you store up in this life will be evidence against you on the next day, or in the next life, you will not honor God and you will not be honored by Him before the angels and before men. I believe that's what he's trying to say in the 2 Corinthians 9. Here's what he talks about. And I'm going to be reading in 2 Corinthians 9, 6-11. He says this, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This is not a passage of health, wealth, prosperity, that if you give your 10%, God will abundantly repay you for you to lavishly use it upon yourself. No, 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 no. That is not at all what this is stating. He goes on, he says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let me clarify that one as well. Some people say, no, 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 no. If you don't really want to give in your heart, then don't give. Just don't, don't give. That's totally fine. God's okay with that. No, he's not. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's the imitation that we have. That's the sacrifice. That's the, the magnitude of what our giving should be. That if we take on the same heart as God, then we should be willing to give as God gave. So if we're not, if we're not wanting to, then that's actually an indictment that we don't share the same heart as God. This is something in which God says, this is how I want you to give. But the command to give is still there. Jesus says it in Luke 12, sell your possessions, give to the needy. It's not a, only if your heart is really in it. He says, sell your possessions, give to the needy, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you aren't ready to give, if you aren't ready to give sacrificially, then your heart is not with God. It's divided. You're two-spirited. And God's not okay with that. Go read James chapter 1 of what he says to the double-minded or two-spirited person. It's being lukewarm. Go see what Jesus says about that in Revelation 3 point is, guys, is that you can't use this verse to say, well, if your heart's not really into giving, then you shouldn't give and God's okay with that. No, this is an indictment. This is how God wants you to give with cheerfulness and joy, not with reluctancy. 
He goes on, he says, And God is able to make all grace abound. Listen to this. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He says, it's not for you to have grace abound to you so that you can just live it up and live large and have everything that you want in life. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. Not for putting it in your own pockets. The rich man will make his possessions abundant for you when you prove yourself faithful in the unrighteous wealth of lavishly giving it to other people. Spending it for his sake. For his glory. So that thanksgiving is produced for him of what he has done through you. And God honors that. When you prove yourself faithful in the little seed that he gives to you, And what you do with it, not to spend it upon yourself, but to lavishly pour it out for others. For his glory and the betterment of others, he will multiply your seed for sowing. For sowing even more abundantly. Listen to what it goes on to say. It says that he will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Meaning, you're storing up treasures in heaven. Not on earth. He says you'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. And listen carefully. Which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints. But is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service. They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Did you catch it, man? I hope you caught that. Because that, I believe, is the message he's trying to share with us in Luke chapter 16. That the rich man, God, is going to put us over his possessions to be stewards of it in a way not that is smart according to man but lavishly gives all to the glory of God and the betterment of other people, even at the expense of ourself. Just like the woman who gave her last two copper coins, all she had to live on, she gave it to the glory of God. And Jesus says she gave more than all these other people did in their abundance because she gave all she had and they just gave a little bit out of their excess. This is the message. That the Pharisees were unwilling to relinquish their position. They still wanted to be served by others. They still wanted the reputation as a means of saying God's favor is on us. Look at us. We're whitewashed tombs. We looked the part. And he says, and that's your justification before men, even though you don't have it from God. And he says, rather, we should use the possessions that the manager or that the rich man has put us over for the betterment of others. Make their life better. And if we're faithful in doing that, God will honor it. And He will be honored. Hopefully that made sense to you. We're going to keep going. 
If you have questions, feel free to reach out to me. I would love to hear your questions. I'd love to try to answer them or direct you at least to, to verses and passages that is going to do a better job than me at trying to answer those things. Verse 18, here's a, here's a, a doozy. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Pretty straightforward. And one of the things that you're, you're going to find on there, or that you won't find, is a footnote that says, except in the case of sexual immorality. Now, why would Luke not include that, but we see that in Matthew? I'll tell you why. Matthew primarily was writing to Jews. Jewish audience who would have had full knowledge of the Torah, and full understanding of what was being taught from the Torah, specifically in Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23. You can even go into 24. But those are the primary passages within that frame, of, um, that scope, that dealt with divorce. Okay. Now, I'm not going to go fully into it. I would encourage you to go look at my podcasts on 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Yeah, I even have some sermons that I gave on 1 Corinthians chapter 7. There's different parts to it. I think one of the podcasts was split up into two parts, and then my sermons were in three parts because the, the amount of material that is in there that needs to be gone over today is immense. I would encourage you to go look at those if you're really curious about this. So why does Matthew address it and Luke doesn't? Well, Luke has a Paulinian perspective. Luke was trained under the hand of Paul. He wasn't trained under the hand of Peter or under Jesus himself. Luke was trained under Paul, so he has a Paulinian perspective of the new covenant teaching of Romans 7 and 1 Corinthians 7. In Matthew, when Jesus is writing this, okay, he is writing this in a Jewish perspective in which his recount of the Sermon on the Mount is going to be clarifying what was written under the law. Now, that's not establishing new covenant doctrine. He's clarifying what was under the law. As I talked about previously, he's clarifying the principles in the law that have been mistaught among the people. So you can say, so now you've been informed and this is what you have to keep. So this concept of divorce from sexual morality was something that was being clarified under the law. Now, in that sexual morality, what's being referenced there is not post-marital infidelity, but premarital infidelity. You can go back in Deuteronomy in 22 and 23, and you can go see what this is referencing. It is premarital infidelity. What does Paul teach us in the New Covenant? Through the hand of the Spirit... Because of the covenant that we now have with God through Jesus Christ and his faithfulness to us in that covenant. What does he teach? Well, let me show you. Romans chapter 7, 1 through 4. I'm going to read that and I'm going to read you what 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says in two different places. And you're going to see what the new covenant teaching is. And it's always been a fascinating concept to me. And the contradiction that is out there with so many people who want to believe a concept of once saved, always saved. That God is faithful to us no matter how unfaithful we are. That God is faithful to us. And once we are saved, we are always saved. He will not abandon us. He will not forsake us. He will not turn away from us. And he will never allow us even to turn away from him. He is always faithful even in our unfaithfulness. And yet those same people will tell somebody that they are free to biblically ju be justified in divorcing somebody simply because of unfaithfulness. Like, do you see the contradiction? Here's the reality. The physical covenant between a man and woman is paralleled to the covenant that we have with God through Christ in a spiritual covenant. It's one and the same. It's a complete parallel. And here it is. 
The only thing that separates the physical covenant is death. The only thing that separates the spiritual covenant is death. You're like, well, I didn't think we could die. Yeah, spiritually you can. That's what Jude references when it says that these people who are still alive, that they're twice dead. They eat with you at your love feast, but they do it without fear. And they're turning the grace of God into sensuality. They have abandoned the right way and forsaken that way, as Second Peter 2 talks on. They have gone astray. Death is the only thing that separates the covenant. This is why Jesus had to die in order to annul the first covenant, in order to establish a second. It's what Hebrews is all about. Jesus had to die in order for the first covenant to be annulled. A death has to occur to annul a covenant made by God. And in the same way in marriage, when a man and woman come before the evidence um, of witnesses and under the authority of heaven and they make this covenant before God, that I am with this person until death does me part, he will hold you to that. The only thing that annuls the covenant, I don't care if you got a piece of paper from a nation that says, yes, this is divorce. I don't care. If God's word says otherwise, you are still in covenant with that person. Listen to what he says in, in Romans chapter 7. He says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Praise God that when we are crucified with Christ and we come into him, the old man has died and the new man has come, that we have now been set apart of that first covenant of the law. But he goes on, he says, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. This isn't past tense, this is present tense. He's establishing new covenant theology right here. And he says, for those who have an intimate knowledge of the law, you should know this. He goes on, he says, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. But what do we just hear? Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Why is that? Because you're still in covenant with them. You aren't allowed to divorce because they haven't died. The only, um, the only cause for remarriage is widowhood. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 7. And I, I'm not going to go into all of it, but I will say this in, in chapter 7, 10 through 11, he says this. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. So this is God's charge. Okay? The husband, I'm sorry, the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. He says this. I don't care the situation. I don't care what's going on. The wife should not separate from her husband. Ever. There's no cause for it. Nothing. And if she chooses to ignore this counsel and she does it anyways, then I'm going to tell you right now. One, she's going to give an account for that. <clears throat> Excuse me. She'll give an account for that. But she better remain unmarried. Because the only other option she has is to be reconciled with the husband. <clears throat> so she's going to ignore this counsel, this charge from God, and she's going to choose to separate from her husband. 
Then he says, then you better darn well make sure that you remain unmarried or else be reconciled to your husband. These are charges from God. Why is he saying this? Why is he giving it, um, you know, this kind of cause? Because he says in verse uh, chapter 7 of verse 39, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Did you catch it? Like, wait, wait, wait a second. What if he's sexually um, immoral? What if he cheats on me and there's infidelity? You're bound to him in covenant until death does you part. This is just the simple teaching that is there. We're the ones who have convoluted it with our own reasoning and thoughts because we want it an easier way. Even in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word. Let me just ask you, is adultery obedience to the word or not obedience to the word? Even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word when they see the pure in conduct and respectful conduct of their wife. He says, your, your job is to still be in covenant with them and to rely upon the grace of God to get you through there and to be the example unto them. Of love, servanthood, even when they don't deserve it. That's your, your commission, wives. And even husbands, your commission is to not divorce your wife. For any reason. You are bound in covenant to them. And that's why Luke doesn't put in here, except in the case of sexual morality. Because he's looking forward right into Theophilus, remember? Theophilus is a Greek who is wanting to know a little bit more accurately the things concerning Jesus so he could have more definitive um, proof that Jesus actually was the Christ. He's writing this to Theophilus, a Greek, and it's a new covenant perspective. This is why he doesn't bring it up. Matthew is writing to Jewish perspective. And that's why he does bring it up. And they would know that he is referencing back into Deuteronomy what this sexual immorality was. And it was when there was premarital infidelity. The reality is, not only does the word state it, that it's an until death does you part. And if you marry somebody else, you are an adulteress. But what are the vows that we say that most people who are standing before um, you know, a, a pastor or somebody who has the authority to marry them and the witnesses and standing before God, they say, I take this person to have and to hold in sickness and in health, richer for poor, for better or for worse, forsaking all others until death does his part. That's the vow that you make. And it's a permanent vow until death does you part. So, with that said, let's keep going. He says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. This is going back into what he's just talking about, right? To the Pharisees who decided that they wanted to feast every day. They wanted to make sure that they... Um, were dressed in the finest clothing. They had the best seats in the synagogue. He says, And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. 
And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. Now understand that Hades is is the Greek word for Sheol in the Hebrew. Same place. And it's essentially not, it's not purgatory, it's a holding place. Um, Purgatory is actually a made-up fallacy of man that takes scriptures out of context or even invents the concept of purgatory um, as a means to make money for the Catholic Church. But that's a different topic. Hades is the Greek word for the Sheol of Hebrew, and it is a place of torment, and it is a place in which people who are outside of Christ are going to go to until hell is opened up, because right now, hell is not opened up, because the first person who's going to be cast into hell is Satan, and it's not opened up until the end. So right now, Hades is simply just a holding place of torment for those who die outside of Christ, who are outside of salvation or paradise, if you will. And paradise is Abraham's bosom. It's the holding place for those who are deemed righteous, for those who will die in Christ until until heaven is opened up. Because in Revelation 21, he says, a new heaven and a new earth will be formed. Until that place is opened, after the great white throne judgment, until that is opened, paradise is a holding place until then. And you don't transfer from one to the other. You don't go from Hades and get to go into paradise You don't go from paradise and get thrown into Hades. They're holding places, and as Ecclesiastes says, as a tree falls, that's where it lays. And listen to the the point that he's trying to make. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. You spent it all for yourself. You lived lavishly. You lived large. You wasted those possessions, if you will. And Lazarus, in like manner, he had bad things. Now for Lazarus, there wasn't much of a choice, it seemed. This is his lot in life. This is what happened to him. But when we get possessions and we get access to money... We do have a choice of how we're going to live. He goes on and he says this. But now he is comforted here and you in anguish. And besides all this between us and you a great chasm has been fixed. In order that those who have passed from here to you may not be able. And none may cross from there to us. And he said then I beg you father to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them. Lest they also come into this place of torment. He says, please send somebody back to go warn them. Send send somebody to go warn my family because this is unbearable and I don't want anyone else to have to suffer this fate. I don't want anyone else to be in torment as I'm in torment simply because they wanted to live it up in this temporary life, this small little um, glimpse of what eternity is going to be like for the rest of forever. Send somebody back, please, to tell them It's not worth it. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. I'm sure of it. If somebody rises from the dead and tells them, 
I'm sure that they'll hear it. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And why does Abraham say that? He says it for this reason. Moses and the prophets all pointed to Jesus. They all pointed to his coming. They all pointed to one day a redeemer was going to come. And he was going to rise from the dead in accordance with the scriptures as, as 1 Corinthians 15 talks about in the beginning of it when he alludes to the gospel that Jesus was buried. I'm sorry, he was um, dead, buried, and resurrected. All in accordance with the scriptures. What scriptures is he talking about? Moses and the prophets. And he says, and if they're not willing to receive that Moses and the prophets were speaking of Jesus and that they were to receive that Jesus rose from the dead, trust me, they'll never repent. So let me just ask you, listener. I'm not sure what your lifestyle is like. I'm not sure how you utilize and spend your money. But are you wasting his possessions on yourself? Or are you using them in the manner to which God said to use them? And that is for his glory and for the betterment of others so that he can receive thanksgiving. Which one fits in how you spend quote unquote your money you know I'm reminded of Malachi I think it's in chapter 3 maybe it's in chapter 4 where he talks about kind of this concept in a physical light and I'm reminded even about how when the Israelites when they came out of Egypt and God delivered them it says that Egypt gave them gold because God had moved upon their hearts to give them that gold. And when Moses went up to go get the law, he came down and he found that the people used the gold that God was intending for his temple. That the people used the gold for a golden calf for themselves to worship. Even in honor of God. They used what God had provided on themselves. And God was ticked. He wanted to destroy them all right then and there if it wasn't for Moses interceding on their behalf. God was ticked because they used their resources for themselves and not for God's glory. And in Malachi, he says a very, very similar thing. In chapter 3, he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Now that's very anti-Calvinistic. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? God, how have we robbed you? How are we stealing from you? Are you, are you catching this picture? As we're about to get into it. When you waste his possessions upon yourself, you are stealing from his glory. You are stealing from God. He says, how have we robbed you? Or they say, how have we robbed you? And he says, in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. 
I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine and your field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as a morning before the Lord of hosts? What is he saying here? He says, look, I am allowing you to have possessions or management over my possessions. And you're not bringing the full amount into your tithes and contributions and offerings that you're supposed to be giving into the temple so that I may eat. So that I may get glory. So that the work of the temple that is to be the blessing to the nations can be done and performed. You are, you are robbing from me because you're spending it more on yourself. And he says, so what am I going to do? I'm going to pull back and shut up heaven from bringing blessing upon you. And I will not rebuke the devourer. See guys, this is part of what it is. That devourer is the God of this world that he's referencing there. And let me just tell you, when you want to live it up, and by what Luke 4 says, you want to bow the knee to Satan, by spending lavishly upon yourself of all the, the worldly mammon the God of this world is providing even. God says, you're worshiping him, not me. Because you can't have two masters. See, God will give us a baseline to begin with. He'll allow us some of those possessions and the little things to say, okay, I want to see what you're going to do with it. But when those possessions begin to multiply, when we're not doing it wisely and stewarding it according to how God says, it wasn't God who multiplied it. It was Satan. Because you chose to bow the knee to him. That's what Luke 4 and Matthew 4 teach. And that's what Jesus even just says here when he says you can't have two masters. You hate the one or love the other. Be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Worldly riches in the image of the wicked and the heathen who spend it upon themselves and decorate themselves. James 4 says that whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And God yearns jealously of the spirit that he makes dwell in us. And so my charge to you, Christian, listener, live in the image of Christ, who though he was spiritually rich in heaven, he chose to come down into this life as a poor man and live for the betterment of others. Not to waste God's possession of life that he has, but to utilize it in full by giving himself as a ransom for the sake of others and the glory of God. And through that he provided the access for us to have the spiritual riches of heaven that God will pour down upon us when we choose to walk in the same image as Christ. Man, if you're part of that that movement about how God's favor is on you when you're rich and that's his blessing, let me just tell you you're wrong. That's not what the scriptures teach. It's not the image of Christ, it's not the image of the apostles, it's not the image of the first church. It is the invention of man who has been deceived by the by their enemy, the God of this world. And you are actually bowing the knee to Satan. God did not intend for us to live large in this life as the world does. 
God intended for us to give as Christ gives, to give as he gave. For God so loved the world that he gave. And he didn't just give 10%. He didn't just give a portion. He gave his son, the most valued treasure that he had. And he gave it for us. Will you do the same for him? Y'all be blessed.